0: Case number 22-5304. Jason Leopold, a Balance versus J. Thomas Menger, Chief of United States Capitol Police, and Ronald Gregory, Acting Inspector General of the United States Capitol Police. Mr. Light for the balance Mr. Pohan for the police. Morning, Mr. Light, you may proceed when you're ready
1: morning. Uh, thank you. May it please the court. This is Jeffrey Light on behalf of plaintiff appellant Jason Leopold. Since there are several issues in this case, I wanted to begin by summarizing what it is that we're asking the court to do. For the subset of capital Police directives that do not contain security information, we're asking the court to hold that under the first step of the common law test, the directives are public records. And at the second step, to remand for the district court to decide whether portions of the directive can be segregated and released. For the documents that do have security information, and this includes some of the directives and some of the IG material, we're asking that this court to hold that there is a segregability requirement in section 1979 and remand for the defendants to explain whether there is any non-security information that can be segregated and released. We're not asking the court to determine whether the District Court or the Capitol Police uh, erred in their judgment in terms of uh, what's security information or not. We're asking simply for the court to resolve a question of statutory interpretation for 1979. That is whether it applies to documents or information. And finally, as to the IG reports, uh, We're requesting a reversal, and in an order that the government comply with the IG Act public posting requirement. Again, the court only needs to resolve the statutory question as to whether the public posting requirement uh, applies to the Capitol Police. On remand, the Capitol Police would be free to assert uh, Section 1979 uh, or any other privileges that they may have to portions of the IG report. Um, and to begin with, um, I want to start with the the issue of whether the directives are public records. Uh, and we think that it's there's a, a pretty straightforward definition in WLF, 2, which is that uh, you look at whether the statements were created to memorialize the decision or statement uh, that has legal significance. And uh, the Capitol Police directives meet that test here. Um, one of the ways in which the term legal significance can apply is that it's binding on a party. And here it's binding, these directives are binding on the capital Police and its employees. Um, the government contends that legal significance uh, only counts if it's binding on members of the public. But there's no authority and no suggestion in WLF2 that that's the case. And in fact it cuts against the wording in WLF2 that the term legal significance should be broadly construed. Um, The government uh, also in in the district court rely on their argument that the directives are preliminary. Uh, But in WLF2, this court never really explained where it got the word preliminary from or why it was incorporating that. into its decision. And I think it's worth taking a moment to ask why preliminary materials are not covered by the common law right of access. And in a whole variety of areas of law, uh, we find that preliminary disclosure of uh, preliminary materials tends to inhibit candid discussion, uh, reveal an individual's raw thoughts, uh, might often be incorrect. And this stands in contrast to official final policies um the uh california supreme court and some subsequent cases there actually looked at wlf2 and its uh use of the phrase preliminary material and elaborated on that uh to to a great extent and looked at factors such as whether the uh, material is tentative or interlocutory um whether it reflects the raw and immature thoughts of the authors and none of those indicia of preliminarity apply here. Sir, um, I, yes.
0: if we were to agree with you that the written directive of public record, then we would proceed to the balancing test to determine whether the district court abused its discretion in concluding that the balance of interest weighed against disclosure. Um, and... And I think you've argued that that at least the district court should have had some kind of further information bond index style about the nature of uh, these directives. Is is that uncharted waters? Have, Have we ever in this kind of a context made that kind of demand? Well, in WLF-1,
1: the court remanded for a vaughn like index to be prepared. Um, but I, I think it's just a, a sort of basic premise of the adversarial process that both parties have access to the information that's needed to mount an effective um, argument, and that the district court have the information before it to make a reasoned decision, and then that the appellate court has a basis, a record basis on which to um, determine whether to affirm. So there are a lot of FOIA cases which discuss this. Um, and it applies here. Not This obviously isn't a FOIA case, but FOIA occupies a universe where um, there is a great imbalance between the information that the parties have and the purpose of the Vaughan Index is to remedy that to some extent so that the adversarial system can play out. The same is true here. I have
0: another, just going back to the very beginning, um, the the complaint in this case invoked only the mandamus jurisdiction, 1361. And if, if we were to agree with the other circuits that have held that's not a viable basis for subject matter jurisdiction and lawsuits against officials in the legislative branch, uh, is that alone a reason that we would have to dismiss your your claim your case no i i
1: think that um it it's largely an academic matter whether jurisdiction is proper under the mandamus act or the general federal jurisdiction question and the, i the reason i i say that is because um when um in in swan v clinton um the uh, general federal jurisdiction statute was said to um have been essentially properly relied upon but that it's the equivalent of uh an injunction the uh a, an, an injunction under the general federal jurisdiction statute is roughly the equivalent of seeking a writ of mandamus um and since this case were was dismissed of course um without prejudice um the effect of doing that would simply be for plaintiff to refile the exact same case, adding in the general federal question um, statute as, as a reference. And I don't think that would be in the interest of judicial efficiency to proceed. But
2: but, 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 it's not just a ma- matter of pleading. It's a matter of what do you have to show to properly um, invoke subject matter jurisdiction. You have to show a clear and indisputable right to relief, um, no other remedy available, and clear duty to act. And then, if you meet all three of those, you still got to show that, you know, um, equitable under the court's equitable um, discretion, it should order a writ. So, how are we in the in the realm of clear and indisputable right to relief, or clear duty to act?
1: So I, I agree with you that those mandamus standards are applicable here. And, um, the, uh, there's, there's no question that there's no alternative form of relief here. Um, number one. And I, I guess the, the real nub of the question then is, um, uh, number one, is there a right to relief, which goes to the merits? And number two, um, is this right so clear and indisputable? um and on that prong, I think that um it is important to look at the specific relief that we're asking for here because I would agree that um if this was merely an error of judgment on the part of the um, uh, the capital police in determining what to release and what not to release that probably would not meet the mandamus test. But what we have here is a question of statutory interpretation for 1979. And we also have for the common law issue uh, a question of law as to what is even required. Once this court um, sets forth what the proper standard is, it may be that there's no dispute at all. In fact, that the, the parties agree as to what material uh, is properly released and not. Um, but since the uh, capital police haven't applied the proper standard in the first place, that is this. Well, let's suppose.
2: Let's suppose the Capitol police referred the matter to you know their general counsel others, and they issued a written finding that you know we've balanced everything under all of the relevant precedent, and they cite all of the the, the cases. Common law right of access and we believe that under that balance um none of these documents should be disclosed what do we do with that what happens under those facts
1: well uh you know we're we're not at that stage yet and i think it's important that we not um uh get get too far I, it's a into,
2: hypothetical oh, question oh, just I, trying to i'm just trying to understand uh, the ramifications of your argument here.
1: I understand. It, it, it's really it's going to depend a lot on the, the context in which that comes up. Because um, if the uh, police uh, make a decision where they take into account segregability and do all the, the balancing and whatnot and come up with a decision, um, and that error that we see is just one of Judgment or discretion, then there's nothing we do at that point. We we lose at that point. I,
0: I thought I just heard you a couple of minutes ago say that the claim is under, um, 1979. I thought that was an kind of obstacle to your case because it supplants the common law right of access as the documents that are designated as security information.
1: Um, not. Sure, if maybe I um if I, if I misspoke on it. Um our our claim is brought under uh the Mandamus Act, um, the general common law uh right of access and the general federal question jurisdiction. Um but to USC 1979, the, the purpose of it here is that um the that is the grounds for withholding and uh both the district court and the capital police made an error of law in interpreting it and so under this court's doctrine of non-statutory judicial review we are we have asked for review of that agency decision obviously you're saying mo- they, I
0: I'm sorry go ahead obviously obviously
1: in most cases the the APA applies and so the Non statutory judicial review is maybe not as familiar a doctrine, but it has largely the same elements as a writ of mandamus.
0: But when you say that the uh, Capitol Police erred in applying 1979, you mean that uh, they wrongly mm-hmm. designated documents as security information?
1: Sort of. What I'm arguing is that um, they interpreted the statute to mean documents can be withheld and they don't need to be segregated, even though the statute specifically says information. And because of that incorrect interpretation of the statute, they never decided in the first instance whether there is any information that can be released.
0: Is that is that claim really in your complaint? I mean, as I understand it, that would be a claim for failure—a claim arising under uh, or under 1331, but for failure to uh, appropriately apply 1979, not a, a claim for right of access. Is that too technical
1: in your view? Well, the um, the capital police hadn't invoked 1979 at the time the case was filed. That's something that happened. Uh, at the summary judgment stage, or the motion to dismiss stage. Um, So that was the first opportunity we had to explain why we thought that we had a right to challenge the decision that they made.
0: And and as I understand the way the Congress is using it is, or the Capitol Police is, is using it, is not that you then get to inquire how they're administering that regime, but that that is the substitute regime and and therefore it it supplants the common law right of access wholesale it doesn't infuse it or inform it it supplants it, and if that's right, then um, you know where it applies it preempts, and the the Congress itself gets to decide what counts as security information according to its specified procedures. I,
1: I mean, I, I think that's, that's right to an extent, which is that to the where the statute applies, that is where there is actually security information, it preempts or supplants the common law. But the question in the first instance, right, did Congress say that security information uh, can be withheld uh, or that non-security information can be withheld simply because it's in a document that contains security information. Congress but, didn't
0: say that. But isn't the Capitol Police position, and I understand you object that it's a blunderbuss position, but isn't their position that these directives are security information?
1: They are saying that they are security Information in that they contain sensitive security information. They've never said that every single word in these documents uh, cannot be released because it's security information. In fact, we have put in the record um, an example of one or two that had been publicly released. And so the court can see, you know, there are these different sections laid out. Perhaps some of the sections go into um, some issues that. involve security information. Some of them are more preliminary. Um, You know, the the balancing of those different sections is something for the court to decide at step two of the common law right of access. But as far as... I guess
0: the question is, is it? If if, uh, 1979 supplants the common right of action, and then the question of what is the appropriate granularity or what's the appropriate unit size of what is security information? Is it really for the court to say, or is that something that is for the U S Capitol police to say under its procedures, you know, under its regime?
1: Well, look, I, I think if the, if the Capitol police said, we went and we reviewed line by line every um directive that we said is uh contain security information and we determined that all of it is security information then i think that's correct there's there's nothing left for the court to do um but that's never happened right the what we're asking for here as a remedy is that the capitol police be ordered to and maybe it doesn't have to be line by line maybe it can be section by section but that they review and determine whether there is anything they think is non-security information that can be released, and in fact that's something that they've done in the past when uh, Congress has um, uh, wanted to release information about January 6th, the Capitol Police then went back to the board and sort of discussed whether this can be released. So um, it, this is um, you know very much in their um, in, in, in their ability to do. If they would, if they had issued a statement like you see in a typical FOIA case that says, um, "We've reviewed and we've determined that no segregable information exists, and here's why," um, then I, I agree that would be the end of it. That just hasn't happened here.
2: Can you cite to any authority for a court in a common law right of access case um, to order? official to basically enforce the segregability requirement?
1: So I, I think um, particularly instructive on this is this court's decision last year in in LA Times, um, which is 28 f Fourth, 292, uh, because in that case this court found that the district court, court had erred by refusing to consider uh, redaction as an alternative to complete withholding under the common law right of access. Um, and prior to that, um, uh, in, in 2021, this court issued a decision, um, case called CNN versus FBI, and in that case, um, which involved the common law right of access, the district court had applied the Hubbard factors uh and had done that in a way that it applied them to um, all of the documents that were at issue in litigation or alternatively documents as a whole. And this court uh, reversed and remanded and said, no, you need to look at the precise portions that are redacted versus not redacted and make a determination as to those granular pieces of information. What is the public's right of interest? What are the secrecy needs Um, on on that level of granularity?
0: Let me ask you uh, about your efforts to get the OIG reports under 1909. There, uh, you you take this dynamic incorporation of the Inspector General Act as your as your starting point, but even if we agree with you on that, um, does 404 e1c mandate uh, the the same disclosure uh, because it has this caveat that's nothing in this subsection shall be construed as authorizing an inspector general to publicly disclose information otherwise prohibited from disclosure by law. And uh, as as we've been talking about, 17, I mean, 1979, as implemented by order 1716, according to the Capitol Police, prohibits the disclosure of all OIG information so that so the caveat in um <laughs> the dynamically incorporated portion of the inspector general act seems to give up the ground so i agree in, in part
1: there is that that provision that uh you know not notwithstanding um other provisions of law which i think would properly incorporate section 1979 That is, if portions of the IG reports contain security information, then the uh, Capitol Police would be able to withhold those portions of them. Um, But the order that was issued never said that. And in fact, when uh, plaintiffs argued in our brief, uh, we, we tried to explain why we thought that there were portions of the IG report that were not security information. Uh, the defendant didn't disagree with that and wrote in their motion um, that the order allows for the withholding of not just security information but all i g information so the question then is is this order um, on par with the with the law as uh, uh, understood and and in the inspector general act and i think it's important to recognize here that under nineteen seventy nine um, there is a provision for the Capitol Police to implement uh, regulations, uh, and they, there's a process they need to go through that, to promulgate formal regulations, which they did not do in
0: this case. So you're Although- arguing that the otherwise prohibited from disclosure by law, that that uh, the order 17.16 is not law within the meaning of that caveat?
1: That's correct. If it were otherwise, then every agency out there could simply say, we direct that the inspector general, uh, not publish their reports, which would defeat the entire purpose of this amendment to the inspector general report. In fact, it does sort of, um, seem potentially the case that that's what happened here, that in response to, uh, the, uh, Congress amending, um, the inspector general act that Shortly thereafter, this order came out um, that said, no, the the public posting requirement will not be honored.
0: Is that argument in your brief?
1: I made it to the district court. Um, I did not reiterate it um, to this court. I don't think it's an essential part of our position. I just thought it would add some context. Um, I, I just also wanted to, um, on the, on the Larson Dugan question, I just had one thing I wanted to add um, if, uh, if there aren't any other questions, if that's all right.
0: Let's take a moment. I think we're, we've taken you far over your time and we're okay. ready to hear from, from, uh, from the government. But if you have one point you wanted to make about Larson Dugan, we'll hear it.
1: Uh, just this, that um, the, uh, questions earlier relating to uh, that um, from, from the previous case where counsel had referred to um, the two possibilities, statutory um, authority versus unconstitutional act. Uh, to be very concise, what the Supreme Court was doing with that language was distinguishing between ultra-virus acts and merely tortious conduct. And the way that we've set up this case, we are alleging that um, there is ultra virus conduct um, and the failure to follow the clear language of the statute, which um, only gives authority to withhold uh, under 1979 things that are security information and under the common law, which um, mer- the, the um, under WLF2, it merges with the merits.
0: Thank you. We'll give you the rebuttal that you've requested. Thank you. We'll hear now again from Mr. Pullum.
2: All right. Good
3: morning again. Um, Again, I'm happy to answer any questions on uh, the arguments made in the the brief, but a a lot of the uh, colloquy I just heard um, focused on Section 1979, so I thought I'd start there um, to just underscore how, this statute works. Um, 1979 is a limitation on the board's authority to release certain information. It does not provide anyone with a right of access. It does not require the board to release anything at all. And it certainly does not have a segregability requirement um, such as is present in uh, uh, FOIA. So to the extent that the uh, plaintiff is trying to bring some kind of non-statutory review claim, which as I think the court noted, was not in the, in the complaint. Um, this clearly would not meet the requirements for, um, non-statutory review because there's been no kind of clear and palpable transgression of a statutory command here. Um, uh, so I, I think really that is, um, just not something the court needs to to worry about because it does not fit within that category, even if it were properly pled here.
0: In the record, Mr. Pullum, there's a, a reference to the designation of information as security information. Um, oh, I'm sorry. On the non-security information directives, it's done by, uh, by who? Who actually makes these? Determinations, there's a, a reference to some team that I'm referring to. Yes. So I, I think review team. I wonder where, who they are and how do we know that they legitimately have uh, unreviewable discretion to make these determinations?
3: My understanding is that these were. Uh, uh, kind of government officials within the capital uh Police organization. Um, I, I'm not sure exactly where um, or, or what their precise titles were, but they were within the, the Capitol Police. And I, I think the as, as your honor uh, indicated, our our argument here is that the way 1979 is structured, it gives the um, uh, decision to the Capitol Police. Uh, police organization to make these decisions and it can all information can be released only if the board makes a specific determination. Um, uh, and in that determination certainly wasn't made here. There's no allegation that the board determined that certain information could be released and that that information was, uh, was not uh, provided. Um, uh, but again, th- this statute just is not set up as an equivalent to FOIA or an equivalent to any kind of access providing uh, statute. So um, I, I think any reliance on 1979 is is kind of misplaced uh, here. Um, a, a couple of other um, uh, points I'd like to uh, hit. Um, with respect to redaction, um, I think there was a question on whether a court has ever required Um, a a coordinate branch to redact its uh, documents under the common law right of action. Um, I'm familiar with one of the cases that um, plaintiff's counsel cited the CNN versus FBI case, and that involved uh, judicial records. And I think that um, uh, the, the Supreme court recognized in Nixon, when it first talked about the common law right of access, it said that courts have supervisory authority with respect to their Records. Um, this court made a similar point in, in Ray Leopold, where it said that kind of um, uh, decisions about access and providing public access to judicial records is the responsibility of the judicial branch. The judicial branch does not have supervisory authority over the record keeping practices of coordinate branches, nor is it responsible for um, uh, determining uh, questions of access and transparency. Those questions are up to uh, the other branch here, the legislative branch.
0: And there's no statutory authority that's been pointed to that would wholesale establish an alternative regime or a supplanting regime.
3: That's right. I mean, the, the only kind of wholesale uh, uh, regime is FOIA, which deliberately excludes Congress from its its scope. Well, yes, the
0: federal rule, we have the, the Dow case where the criminal rule displaces the common law. That's right. Right of access.
3: That's right. Um, uh,
0: to, but to the extent that that Mr. Light is arguing that the documents have been wrongly designated as security information, why isn't that part of his claim? It's sort of saying that the the extent that the, the Capitol Police are relying on 1979, they're exceeding Mm -hmm. its bounds. They're basically acting ultra virus under it. Yeah.
3: So I think two points here. One, um, I, I, I don't think that that statute could provide, the, as I said before, um, I don't think that statute could provide a, a kind of grounding for an ultra analysis because there's no uh, restriction in that statute, clear restriction that's been violated. Um, um, this sounds very much like an error in the application of the statute, which does not amount to um, uh, ultra virus. And with respect to the um, alleged error, what i heard counsel to say this morning was that he doesn't disagree with designations of um like identification of security information what he disagrees with is the level of granularity so that it can't be done on a document basis in, in other words he says if there is something that counts as security information as a in a document, and there is other information that on its own would not be security information, and you can't say that whole document is uh, security information.
0: And he actually has pretty robust authority for the notion that across the U.S. Code that there's a different treatment of, especially in disclosure statutes, of documents versus information. And that when Congress uses information, it does typically mean information within a larger unit. So that's, I think that's his argument.
3: Yeah, yeah, this depends on, um, I, I think largely this is driven by comparisons to FOIA, which is a statute that provides a right of public access, imposes on the agency a burden to demonstrate that Information falls within a particular exemption and then has a segregability requirement saying, OK, even if you satisfy your burden under exemptions, you still have to segregate and, and release the rest. Section 1979 doesn't have any of those features, um, no right of access, no segregability, and it it it's not making any kind of uh, distinction between um, uh, information and records as a whole.
0: And I, I think if, if, if we think about, uh, as I was suggesting to Mr. Klein, if we think about 1979 as a as a different regime that supplants the common law right of access by its terms, it is limited to security information. It just is. It only speaks to it. It doesn't speak more generally to information within the custody of the Capitol Police. This is any other the, this is the, after the definitions, the first substantive provision is any security information in possession of the Capitol Police may be released only if the Capitol Police Board determines that the release will not compromise security. And so if you think of the, of the sort of footprint, of 1979 as limited to security information, then it doesn't displace the common law right of access with respect to information that is not security information. So it is the, it is the statute's own own edge that allows uh Mr. Light's claim to go forward on, on that argument.
3: I mean, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that's the best way to to, to look at that here because it is, um, uh, because of the many different ways it displaces the, the uh, common law, one by providing a default of secrecy, um, one by setting... That's to
0: security information, the only information it addresses.
3: But it doesn't say what the kind of level of granularity it is. And there are some regimes, for example, classified information, you can have a... 10-page document, and if there's one paragraph that's classified, that document is classified for purposes of the proper executive order. Now, there, you know, FOIA comes in with a segregability requirement that is separate, but at least, it, so I'm saying there are there are systems where we treat uh, documents holistically. Um, and I think that's what uh, security information is doing and here. Your best, we
0: your best textual argument <clears throat> in response to Mr. Light's argument that this statute itself tells you the level of granularity by using, and I believe only using the term information. Um, and although it gives the Capitol police board authority to promulgate regulations, regulations, we don't have a regulation that interprets this term. That's right. But I, but I
3: think the this, the statute also displaces uh, a court from making the uh, determination. I mean, this this statute is kind of suffused with um, uh, deference and discretion to the Capitol Police to decide what is sensitive, which is inherently kind of uh, um, discretionary and. and Judgment laden call.
0: So, do you go so far as to say that um, the determination
3: of security information is not ever subject to review? I, I think that's right. There's no, there's no provision of judicial review in Section 1979. Um, the Capitol Police and its board are not agencies under the APA, so you can't uh, seek judicial review that way. Um, Council has said, well, we can get non-statutory review, and I think I explained why we don't think that uh, applies here, because there's nothing in this, uh, no command in this statute that has been clearly um, Uh, uh, disregarded. I mean, this court's uh, test for non-statutory review is really quite strenuous, um, quite rigorous. Um, It has to be kind of no authority whatsoever, not a garden variety uh, claim error, and jurisdictional or nearly so. Um, Court has recent uh, cases, Federal Express, the Changji case, That's a very, very high bar, and I I don't think that there's anything in this statute that could ground uh, ultra-virus review. Happy to answer any other questions about um, sovereign immunity that we didn't get to, or the uh, scope of the common law right of access that we believe uh, does not extend to documents in the legislative branch. Otherwise, happy to rest on our brief.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Light, we'll hear from you briefly on rebuttal.
1: Uh, thank you, Your Honor. Um, there's a, there are a lot of moving pieces here, uh, but I, the issue of what I've been calling segregability seems to be at the heart of a lot of it. And so I wanted to explain just a little bit more what I mean by that. In terms of the common law, um, when a document is a public record then a presumptive right of access attaches to it, at which point the government can overcome that by showing the need for secrecy and and a balancing takes place. But the default is that public records in this country uh, are to be disclosed. And so that's the starting point, right? 1979 then comes along and is in uh, derogation Of that common law right and so to the extent it applies it will displace the common law Uh, however um, we need to be careful to read it exactly as congress wrote it and this is not an instance of um, you know field preemption or something like that where there's a statute that completely displaces the entire common law regime this is um, just a a single non-disclosure statute it tells the court when uh, things that would otherwise be disclosable should not be disclosed. Um, but if the statute doesn't apply um, and the government can't meet its burden on the second part of the test, then it needed to be disclosed.
2: But to, to the extent that um you prevail. You have to still show us that there is that there's um, kind of a, a, a clear and indisputable right to relief. I mean, what we've said before, you know, um, last term in Illinois v. Ferrero, the Equal Rights Amendment case, we said, you know, even if the plaintiff has a you know a, a legal argument with some force. That doesn't give get you over the mandamus threshold. It's got to be an argument that is indisputable. Do you agree that that's a standard you have to meet?
1: Yes, but the standard is once, I mean, with, with respect to section 1979, the, the standard is once the statute is construed, the right needs to be clear and irrefutable. So our argument here is that the court should construe the statute, And remand for the court to determine, for the district court to determine, if at that point uh, it is clear and indisputable. As far as the um, uh, the common law issue, um, you know whatever the um, the government may be wishing to do later, at this stage we're bound by uh, you're you're bound by WLF two, which says the uh, ultra virus question merges with the merits of the common law right of access. And so um, that is the equivalent test to mandamus, um, the clear and indisputable right of access. If it's ultra virus, um, and you meet all the other tests of mandamus, you're entitled to relief.
2: Um, Mandamus says it's non-ministerial. That's right. is that the same thing as ultra virus? Doesn't seem like.
1: Th- those are those are two separate things, right? But the disclosure of a document is a ministerial act. We're, we're not asking for the court to order the police to determine what a reasonable rate is for a freight carrier, right? We're <laughs> asking the ministerial act of give us this document.
2: Thank you. Okay.
0: Thank you. The case is submitted.
2: Thank you.